Thanks for listening to coverage of the Society of Environmental Journalists Annual Conference 2019 in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks to all our members and supporters for making this possible. For more information on this and other sessions, look for the 2019 conference agenda at sej.org. Hello, everyone, once again. <laughs> this is the Public Lands Reporting from the Extremes panel. Um, I guess we'll just go through first and introduce ourselves. So I'm the moderator, Anna V. Smith. I'm an assistant editor uh, with the High Country News Indigenous Affairs Desk. Hi, um, my name is Caitlin Goodluck. Again, I'm a fellow at High Country News as well. Okay. Hello, uh, my name is Bill Moreland, and I'm a, a longtime journalist, and uh, I'm actually an expert on extremist issues, not the environment. But we're here to talk about the interface of the two, and I hope I can uh, offer a few tips in that regard. And uh, Brian Calvert, I'm the editor-in-chief of High Country News, and um, I'll take this out. Um, and I think what I'll be walking through is some of our coverage of um, this, this intersection uh, and the, the way that we sort of think about extremist groups uh, in the West and um, sort of how extremist groups um, hate groups and anti-Fed groups all kind of uh, mixed together in a kind of a funky stew pot. And uh, we'll just kind of talk about our coverage that way. Yeah. So really quick, just to talk about the term extremism, I think mostly for this conversation, it's going to focus around things like white nationalism, as well as patriot groups, which are anti-government uh, groups for the most part, as well as anti-American Indian groups. So those are kind of like the three nebulous things that we'll be covering over this panel. Um, so maybe to start off, with um, just so we can be familiar with all of your work um, could you tell us how you got started on this reporting and um, why you think it's an important thing to be covering yeah so I um, I'm pretty I'm still new to this beats um, both indigenous affairs but covering uh, hate and extremism um, I came to um, this during the 2016 campaign election when I was at uh, Investigative Fund, now called Type Investigations, and I was assisting in investigative reporting in uh, Trump's emboldenments is, you know, his dog whistles and what the hate groups were really latched onto. Um, and uh, then I kind of came into looking at... Um, anti-Indian groups as well. Um, I was really inspired by actually Anna's reporting um, on it, um, though this issue's been, um, anti-Indian groups have been active um, since I would say the mid-70s or so, um, especially when the Indian rights movement began, anti-Indian movement uh, groups also began um, in opposition, um, very reactionary. Um, but now I am focusing, the last thing I did for High Country News was uh, looking at how white nationalists, both in, um, in Europe and uh, here, both use uh, indigenous rights language um, as a way of co-victimization and appropriating the experience of genocide and cultural loss by Native Americans. That has been happening since um, the Nazi era. Um, you know, you wouldn't think that it you know, Germans would have a weird obsession with Native Americans, but they do, so. 
on to you. <laughs> wow. Hey, so uh, first of all, on a kind of a related topic, I want to put a plug in for a friend of mine who's a chairman of the journalism department at Washington State University. He spent the last four or five years working on a uh, documentary that's going to be on public television on um, November 25th. It's called The Blackfeet Flood, and it's about what happened to two dozen members of the Blackfeet Reservation who drowned in a historic flood in June of 1964. Two dozen people on that reservation were swept to their death when two earthen dams broke loose. Huge environmental story. It turned out to be the worst natural disaster in Montana history and the federal government and the owners of the dam stepped in and gave these uh, horribly impacted families tents and that's basically the only compensation they've ever gotten and of course now with the statute of limitations long since gone and the story closely the documentary closely examines uh, how uh, the federal government and the state government and how generally a white society tr treated these um, poor folks on the Blackfeet Reservation. So uh, it's a little far afield from what we're talking about here, but um, I thought I would give you a mention. I think you're going to find it interesting. It's on November 25th on public television. Um, a little quick background on myself. I'm, uh, I've been a working journalist since 1967. In 1980, while working for the newspaper in Spokane, I was assigned to go cover a group up in the mountains called the Aryan Nations. And since 1980 and until today, I've continued to basically focus on that area of, uh, of uh, anti um, you know, anti-Semitism, uh, white nationalists, white supremacy, domestic terrorism, hate crimes, that whole general area. I covered uh, Aryan nations in the various offshoots, including uh, a group called The Order in the mid-80s. I covered Ruby Ridge in 1992. I covered the Montana Freeman standoff in 1996. I covered a host of trials all over the country, from Fort Smith, Arkansas to Denver. Um, and I got to know firsthand, uh, largely from sitting in courtrooms and reading criminal records, exactly uh, what these people can do. Uh, the reason I'm here today, and I'd like to, uh, you know, to thank Anna and Brian for including the topic of the interface between extremism and environmental issues, because it's really an important area, I believe. Of course, I'm coming at it from the extremist expertise, but th that interface between extremism. Uh, and white supremacy groups and militia groups and patriot groups, or call them what you will, has been ongoing for a long time. And uh, later on, uh, as we go through this, I'd like to just give you some quick history and walk you through some examples that I know of. And those of you who are beat reporters, I think it's really important to look at the people that are uh, you know, opposed to environmental issues in your communities or whatever issue you're taking a look at, and look at, the, look, look at who they are, where they come from, what ideological groups they're affiliated with, and uh, it's so. It's I, I'm I, I I enjoy the opportunity to come this come this far to talk to those of you like this just because of my uh, uh, inspiration in this general topic. So uh, with that, I'll pass the microphone on down to Brian. Yeah. So my interest in this subject matter is slightly slightly different and not um, kind of was sort of surprising to me. But I had a. a long career as a foreign correspondent, uh, and I worked uh, covering a couple of different insurgencies, uh, one in southern Thailand and, you know, big one in Afghanistan, ongoing. Um, and um, so I kind of came to High Country News um, leaving that part of my career behind, uh, and then I was immediately put into um, 
what was clearly a kind of insurgency, um, an anti-Fed uh, movement that is um, has a long history um, and kind of gains a lot of um, ground a across public land issues. So once I got to High Country News, there was the uh, standoff in Nevada um, over uh, Clive and Bundy's cattle. Uh, and then uh, there were a couple of st uh, strings of other things that we covered um, that we eventually called the Sagebrush Insurgency, which was a sort of escalation of the old Sagebrush Rebellion. Uh, and that was a, you know, a big pushback against uh, federal public land management uh, in the late 1970s um, and has sort of grown and morphed. Uh, so we've, at High Country News has covered not just the Bundys, not just the Malheur occupation, but also other uh, patriot groups or anti-federal government groups um, in the ways that they uh, stand up against the federal government. Uh, and from my perspective, they do what every good uh, insurgency does, which is delegitimize government and make itself useful in the vacuum that it creates. And so uh, when you have uh, groups of, of armed militiamen uh, standing up for, or sort of filling in for police or sheriffs in Oregon, uh, where you have sheriffs themselves uh, asserting their authority over the, um, any other government institution, those are all ways to uh, delegitimize a federal government. So from my perspective, those track with uh, insurgency warfare. Yeah, so thanks everybody for giving us that rundown. Um, and I think going off of what Brian just said, I think that it's important to note that um, in addition to the example that Bill was giving of Aryan nations and those kinds of groups, that there are also other ways that this kind of extremist rhetoric echoes in these positions of power like sagebrush sheriffs or like even state legislators or county commissioners in these kinds of um, conversations. So, um, Bill, maybe going back to you, since you mentioned this, um, could you talk about the way that extremism and environmental conflicts over public land that you've seen in your career have um, coincided? Okay, I have a, quite a long list, so I may, I may jump through some of this real quickly, but uh, as I indicated, as I indicated uh, in my previous remarks, the first intersection that I saw was in uh, the 1980s when the Aryan Nations was pleading for members to come join them in their white supremacy ranks, and they were particularly targeting unemployed loggers. And they said, you white unemployed loggers have lost your jobs because the greenies and the environmental folks out there are trying to protect the spotted owl. And who cares about the spotted owl when you guys have lost your job? Come and join us. And in fact, some people did. And Richard Butler and his crew went around the Northwest pitching that message in the 1980s. Um, uh, in June of 2011, here in Colorado, uh, other uh, kind of patriot type people uh, got, you know, went toe to toe with um, uh, federal, uh, I guess, federal officials who were uh, trying to impose uh, curtailing uh, off-road vehicle access to uh, about two, two and a half million acres of land in the San Juan forest. And so again, it's there, the issue is 
uh, you know, come and join us if you want to drive your ORV on public lands and it's the big federal government and they're out of control. As Anna mentioned, sometimes some of these issues go beyond white supremacy or white nationalism. They, they, they'll, they'll appeal to other, to other areas. Uh, as, uh, as was mentioned in April of 2014, uh, Clive and Bundy and got in a standoff with federal agents. And one of the reasons they were trying to impose grazing fees on Clive and Bundy was a concern over the desert tortoise. And Clive and Bundy and his militia buddies and his patriot buddies couldn't care less about the desert tortoise, which many of us, of course, do. And, and they failed to recognize that these lands where he was grazing his cattle are public lands. And they uh, think the federal government has no right owning public lands, and they want to strip that away. And they've really uh, broadened that, that message. Uh, that was in April, and it's still ongoing today. Um, just some other quick examples. Uh, after the Bundy standoff in Utah, another group of uh, Patriot-type individuals and anti-government activists got involved in a another um, ATV case, and they deliberately drove their four-wheel drives and their ATVs into an area that had been uh, restricted on federal lands. And you know, it's who are you, federal government, to impose these regulations on us? In uh, May of 2015, in near Missoula, Montana, uh, a property owner, an older man, uh, was charged with uh, federal charges of. Uh, discharging pollutants into waters of the United States. He basically decided to make his own pond, and he, he dug out a huge area of land that was on his property and adjoining federal property, deciding he wanted to have a pond. And when the Forest Service officials went up there and said, hey, what are you doing? You know, he and his militia buddies started pointing guns at federal officials, and no one was injured. Ultimately, they, they charged him with um, federal crimes, and in July of 2016, he was convicted. He has since passed passed on. His case actually went to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and really, if his wife continues pushing it, it may have some uh, some important uh, impacts down the line. Uh, skipping through real quickly, in April of 2015 in uh, Merlin, Oregon, um, some uh, some men who had an old gold mine claim in southwestern Oregon uh, quickly called for uh, support from a group called the Oath Keepers, which is a, a paramilitary uh, militia-style group that you know takes their guns and runs off to anybody that calls for their help. They were in St. Louis, you know, during the Ferguson riots. The Oath Keepers. So if you hear that name pop up and there are any environmental issues involved, it's, it's a group to definitely keep your eye on. In August of uh, that same year, 2015, in Lincoln, Montana, the Oath Keepers showed up at a, a small um, a local or a local mine uh, owner was in a dispute with the US Forest Service claiming that uh, he uh, that you know that he had certain rights to go in there despite new federal regulations that prohibited certain practices he was doing so a lot of a lot of these anti-government types seem to intersect with the Forest Service and the BLM pretty frequently over mining claim issues as well as um, use of for uh, public lands and Forest Service areas uh, the Clive and Bundy standoff, which you probably have all heard about, was in January of 2016. Excuse me. That was the uh, Oregon, the Malheur uh, standoff, um, where they wanted uh, two, two individuals in Oregon there had been convicted of, of uh, arson related to, to a fire that spread to public lands. They were convicted. And uh, Ammon Bundy, who's Cliven's son, didn't believe that those convictions were justified, and they wanted the local sheriff to intervene. So many times, some of these cases will originate from the courthouse. Um, 
And to wrap this up, the most recent thing that I've seen that, that you know, has been written about is that in Montana, there's a big fight going on now over the National Bison Range, whether or not um, it should be turned over to the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes, which the tribes want. The National Bison Range is encircled by that by that uh, reservation, and now um, you know anti-Indian activists have uh, you know jumped into the fray. So, uh, th and there is a lot of overlap between. Um, yeah, white nationalism and white supremacy groups, patriot groups, and the anti-Indian movement. And it's particularly ripe in the state of Montana, although it exists everywhere else. And I could uh, go on, but I think at this point I will cut it off. <laughs> okay. Did either of you want to add to that? Or Brian or Kaylin? No? Okay, very cool. <laughs> What's that? That was pretty comprehensive. It was very comprehensive. Thank you, Bill. Um, yeah, and then and then I guess um, going off what you were just saying about the National Bison Range, that also reminds me that another instance in Montana is the um, water compact that's ongoing, and that's a similar situation where um, anti-American Indian groups have kind of jumped into the fray and kind of distorted the conversation and entered their own talking points um, into conversations around... Uh, water allocation. Um, all right, so then now that we kind of know what you all have reported on and give, have given us some examples of um, like current events, basically, um, what, what do you think are some difficulties or pitfalls that you've seen when reporting on extremism, either that you've experienced yourself or things that you see often in, in other media? Mm. Brian, do you want to go? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think from the perspective of high country news, what has been difficult to um, kind of lay out, you know, it's sort of writing and reading are obviously like linear practices, but what happens with these extremist groups are they're very like networked and connected and tangled together. So it can actually be really hard to tell the full story of what's happening. So for example, um, these groups will have like large um, patriotic toward of freedom uh, assemblies or meetings or conferences and lots of different leadership from the different groups will show up will show up there uh, but you can't really put them under the same umbrella except for they share some some ideologies but it's manifesting in different ways so uh, yeah uh, a white supremacist group is slightly different from a, um, a, a patriot militia um, anti-indian group might not necessarily um, be a part of a border militia uh, but they all kind of find common cause and they all sort of show up together and it can be really hard to sort of explain that sometimes um, and so I think um, the I mean the Southern Poverty Law Center does a really good job of tracking all of these different groups they have a hate map that you can look at and um, you know it's interesting just to sort of give this a little extra oomph is um, in 2000 the year 2000 they tracked 599 hate groups across the United States um, and today, in 2018, that number's up to 1,020. So the numbers of these groups are increasing and they're sort of splintering. Um, 
and they can be really hard to track as well because they're sharing their ideologies across uh, social media platforms. Uh, they're kind of in and out. It's a, it's a really sort of protean thing to cover. So if you really kind of want to get into it, you have to sort of go all in, I think, and um, really kind of study up on what the different ideologies are and who the different characters are because the different uh, different people who are leading different movements at different times will show up across They'll, they'll kind of pop up. It's like kind of a little bit of a whack-a-mole. Um, so I, I think for reporters, it's a real challenge to sort of explain to the readers what this stew is. And uh, it can be really hard um, as a reporter just to kind of keep up with all of it just because it's kind of all over the place. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that also kind of plugs into what we've been talking about today, especially this morning, about how there's like a general... Um, ignorance of American Indian issues writ large. And so from my reporting on the topic, um, I mean, these groups know that and they exploit that. And so not only when it comes to, to journalists, but just like your average citizen who's trying to learn more about a topic, they know that maybe they don't know that much about tribal sovereignty or treaty rights. And so they use that to their own advantage to advance their talking points. Is there anything that you wanted to add to that idea? Yeah, definitely. So. Uh, there are a few people now who who are pretty well who are like experts in the topic of like anti-Indian movements um, and that's like Chuck Tanner who's also partnered with Leonard Zeskind and they're kind of also giants in um, tracking hate and extremism since like around the 70s or so um, and they run the Institute for Research on Human Rights I believe in Washington DC um, and the Montana Human Rights Network has also been um, really active in the 90s with tracking anti-Indian groups um, and the thing about to your point, Anna, about people not really understanding, um, you know, indigenous issues such as like treaty rights and, um, you know, understanding how they're being asserted. And so these groups, though, they're not well, they're not like heavily funded by like the Heritage Foundation. Um, but they do sort of, they are kind of like the go-to group for like individual liberty or property rights groups. Um, and they do use this language of, we're like a civil rights organization or we're an equal rights organization. Um, that doesn't, why should Indians get uh, special rights and privileges? You know, those treaties were supposed to be have been abrogated um, in certain, you know, in the past and they, they have a very strong um, Indian legal framework, and they know how to spin that to their advantage. Um, so that's one thing about them. And but you know they are really small. Um, they and but they are extremely well networked. Um, and that's kind of yeah. Cool. That's it. <laughs> I kind of add to like a kind of concrete example of how that plays out in newsrooms is that um, when we started Tribal Affairs Desk, we still had our comments on High Country. We have turned our comments off, like I think a lot of different organizations. Um, 
because the sort of level of discourse is kind of terrible and we don't really have the bandwidth to monitor it. But before we turned that off, um, when we ran tribal affairs stories, we would start to see these same kind of people commenting with these really kind of arcane, complicated, constitutional, like, oh, why are you, you know, that's not right. This is not true. This, that. And it was kind of, we didn't, I didn't understand it. I don't think many of us understood it until it, um, until we got going with the uh, the desk and it, it's sort of like oh these are these are anti-indian groups that are sort of putting this ideology into they're sort of muddying the waters on on what are some pretty clear actual co- uh, constitutional and indian law precedents that are set uh, but they're very good at sort of commenting on these things to sort of muddy the water and sort of undermine um kind of some basic uh, legal stuff in the country. So, yeah, it's just kind of an interesting, um, there's, it's kind of information warfare in a way. Um, they're the manipulation of, of, of social media algorithms, you know, within three three clicks on YouTube, you can go from some innocuous, <laughs> some innocuous video to real kind of hate rhetoric. So, you know, there, there's, it's really a sophisticated thing to cover. And I think that's sort of coming out up here. Cause it's like, there's so much to talk about all at once. It's kind of hard to wrap, wrap your head around it, but it does sort of come out in your newsrooms and in your reporting through, through comments or, um, yeah, this sort of like, what, what? No, I'm just saying property rights. Well, that's not racist. You know, it's kind of like, well, eh. <laughs> And then going back to the question before, um, this one's for Bill, the same one that Brian answered. Um, what are some difficulties that you have either experienced yourself or that you've seen in, in media when it comes to reporting on extremism? Uh, well, there are many, and one is, as Brian noted, is that not all these folks, uh, you know, at a, at a place like Malheur, where I was in 2016, they're not all from the same from the same uh, you know mindset, but they do have some things in common. One of the pitfalls, uh, if you're out there working a story and you're up against some of these people, I think one of the key questions to ask them to go back to Anna's question is, what what's your goal here? What are you trying to do? And when I was at Malheur, the folks that occupied Malheur, one of the things they wanted to do was take this reservation, and correct me on my size, but it's like 50 or 60,000 acres. It's a huge wildlife preserve in eastern Oregon. It's where birds, migratory birds stop at certain times of year going north and south. It's it's flatland. It's kind of desert, but there's some swamps there. It's, it's kind of a beautiful place, even in the winter. But their goal, after they occupied the place, while they're desecrating, by the way, Indian artifacts that are buried there, which gets back to the Indian, Indian anti-Indian overlap, um, they they wanted to have the federal government, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which owns that or, or not doesn't own it, the American public owns, but U.S. Fish and Wildlife uh, manages it. They wanted the U.S. Fish and Wildlife to turn it over to the county, and some reporter, and I'm not sure who I should give credit to because I'm not exactly sure who did this, but they said, what would it cost the county there in Burns, Oregon? It's a small county out in relatively you know poor county out in Eastern Oregon, what would it cost them if suddenly the federal government said, here, it's yours, take it. 
Well, just the fire suppression, uh, fire suppression costs alone the county couldn't afford, let alone the rest of the, the management, you know, making sure that, you know, that it's uh, protected and taken care of and so forth. So w if you come across these issues in your reporting of these stories, go to these people that, that, that might be on this patriot, white supremacy, uh, militia, whatever, anti-Indian, whatever the fringe group is you're dealing with, and, and pin them down. What is your goal? What do you want to do? And sometimes that the why of the question sometimes is the most important question for you journalists to remember to ask. Yeah, and then to answer my own question, <laughs> um, when I've reported on this stuff before, some of the difficulties are just being in conversation and trying to work through what you all were just talking about in terms of all of their, not just their ideology, but their their reasoning. Like sometimes it's like really mind bending and it's really hard to wrap your mind around how they're connecting all of these dots. Um, and, and sometimes it gets hard because I've been at rallies before where people draw me into conversation and then they start asking me questions and it's very like aggressive and fake media, like, you know, whatever. And, and I don't know if any of you have experienced that before, but that's the difficulty that I've had in trying to keep my distance while also trying to get the story. It's kind of a weird weird thing to try to manage. I don't know if you have any anecdotes from Tate's coverage or anything like that to share, Brian, but. Yeah, I think that's something to be on guard for and sort of like, you know, um, uh, forewarned is forearmed, but having sort of, we've got a lot of information about where these kind of ideologies are coming from, but um, it's almost impossible if, I, I don't know if you've had like, um, I don't know, like a crazy uncle who's just like listens to Rush Limbaugh all the time. Like he's just packed with information that is just probably wrong, but it's like and it's arcane in its own way, and it it's doesn't. Like so specific, you can't be like, like that's I not don't true. Know that. And if you don't know that, then you're like, you, well, then you lost, you know. And then, um, but um, the way that that can also come out is, um, you know, an example on this sort of. Um, ideological swarm in a way so we had our uh, writer Tay Wiles covering the trial of um, Cliven Bundy um, after he had the standoff with the feds he was eventually arrested because he was on the way to go visit everyone at the Malheur um, occupation uh, and he got snapped up and he was um, indicted and he was on trial <clears throat> and uh, Tay was hanging out outside of the uh, courtroom and she was just talking to one of the Bundy supporters kind of sitting there and um, the judge in that case was uh, a Latina judge and the man that Tay was talking to said that judge ought to be hung up by that tree right there. And we had this huge conversation about how, how do we include that in the story? What is the relationship between the anti-Fed movement and um, uh, white supremacy or just kind of what are its sort of uh, racist undertones? You know, was this just sort of a tough talk from a sort of like a Western vigilantism or is it sort of was there some other kind of um, uh, texture to it in a way uh, we did report it and what happened after we reported and Tez was still in Las Vegas kind of covering the trial so when the story came out uh, we posted it on Facebook because Facebook runs our lives and um, 
the kind of this pileup started because one woman said, oh, I was standing next to the reporter when she was talking to him. He never said anything like that. Fake news. So then everyone starts to pile on on comments, which is like, oh, this is fake news and kind of... Um, another person sort of piled onto that and like sort of like at mentioned me specifically, which was like Brian Calvert, your publication has been called out as fake news. How do you respond to this? And it was just like, and it was just kind of flared. And, and what you sort of learn when you cover this stuff is that they're very sophisticated. They're good at doing this. It's not like an organic, like, you know, it's like a, a concerted effort to like beat the algorithm and, and get on top of it. Um, and uh, sort of what happened in that case was a few of our like longtime readers were like, actually, High Country News is very good and it's never fake news and we trust it. And our own readers kind of shut down the, the comments. Um, but you can just kind of get a sense of there's this, there's just like sort of weird, sophisticated swarm ideologies that they speak their own language to each other. They sort of back each other up. And um, in, in that case, we're really trying to discredit that that part of the story, um, which I thought was a really important element of, of the whole thing, because you can't really talk about an anti-Fed movement. If you go back in history far enough, you can't really talk about it without talking about the Aryan nation and white supremacy. They're like totally related. So it's just kind of those kinds of things that like sort of come up. And if you don't really understand how these groups work, you can really be caught off guard as a journalist or in your newsroom. Um, and it can also take a big emotional toll on a reporter. And, on, and it's like designed to do that. So, I'm wondering, Bill, since you were a local reporter at the Spokesman Review um, while you were reporting on some of this stuff, did, is that something that you ever faced as well in terms of personal backlash? And how did you deal with that? Well, yes, I did. It's something I don't uh, relish in talking about. But when I, uh, in the 25 years that I covered Richard Butler and the Aryan Nations, they had a 20-acre compound, as some of you may know. It was in North Idaho, and it was actually, they had a bunkhouse and a church, and Butler lived there with his wife, and they had, you know, an armed an arm gate at the, at the entrance, and it's up on a kind of a secluded hillside north of Coeur d'Alene. And um, over, the, over the years that I uh, wrote about that group, and, and I should, I like to tell everyone that we didn't write about them to give them free publicity. We wrote about them when members of that group committed crimes and, uh, and they were in the courtroom or they were in the jail. We didn't willy-nilly write about them. But early on, um, Richard Butler, I was talking to him on, a, on one occasion, I believe it was you know, about in the mid-80s when some two dozen members of his group had committed domestic terrorism crimes, ranging from assassinating a Jewish talk show host in Denver to uh, printing counterfeit money. They committed other murders. They robbed a armored car in Ukiah, California, committed a host of crimes that largely went unnoticed by the mainstream media. It was reported in the Northwest pretty thoroughly. The Denver papers and the Denver media covered it. But anyway, I'm talking to Butler, and he looks at me, and he sees my blue eyes and my blonde hair. I'm of Norwegian-Swedish ancestry. And he said, you know what? You're a race traitor. You should be one of us. And he actually, and he went on to explain how he detested race traitors like me more than if I was Jewish or a person of color. And he and his followers would continually remind me of that. Uh, I had guns pointed at me on a couple of occasions. I was spat upon by skinheads. And I resisted the urge to engage them in an argument. And I would tell them, I'm here because 
a court, a court case is ongoing. I'm here to get your response to the fact that one of your church members has been arrested for assassinating somebody or robbing an armored car or whatever the case might be, merely to get your response. If you have no comment, fine, I'm gone. I'm not here to pester you. I'm certainly not here to argue with you. And, uh, and likewise with the militia movement, and I've encountered that. I've been at some pretty lonely uh, way stops up in Montana and in eastern Washington and Idaho where these so-called patriots are hosting their gatherings. And you're there. I'm there by myself. Sometimes I might be there with a photographer. Uh, sometimes I might be there with a fellow journalist, but the other guys greatly outnumber us. And so you have to know how to, you know, keep your backside covered and, and know that you're, you're, not, you're not there to get involved in any kind of confrontations and explain to them that, you know, I'm part of a free press and I'm here to accurately uh, report on what you're up to and why you're doing it. Why are you doing this? Why are you gathered at this roadside stop near Knox in Montana, you know, because you think Obama's going to come and get your assault rifles? Yeah. D minor pro tip on that. A lot of these groups say that they espouse the Constitution and that they're, they're, the Constitution is the law of the land, not the federal government. Um, and that When we say a, a sagebrush sheriff, those are sheriffs who believe that they're empowered by the Constitution to be the law of the land, not the federal government. Uh, uh, but um, I know that some of our, one of our photographers uh, during the sort of initial takeover of the um, Malheur Wildlife Refuge uh, was there because we were covering the, the protests that preceded it about this, this court case for these ranchers. Um, and I got a call on Saturday night from this photographer said like, okay, well, some of these folks are going, some of these folks are staying here to protest, which she's there to cover. And some of them are going to take over the wildlife refuge. So what should I do? <laughs> And I was like, wildlife refuge. <laughs> so she went there and she got there just as they're like, they're just tearing down signs to start fires because it's cold and, and, and she wants to take pictures. Oh, and they're draping a, a flag over the um, sign for the refuge and all this stuff. And they don't, they don't want her to come in or take pictures. But she's like, well, I thought you guys were like pro-constitution. And so what about the First Amendment and, and the sort of right of the, of the press? And they were like, uh... <laughs> Okay. You know, and so they, like, let her take pictures. And so these are, like, people who have, like, pocket constitutions, yeah. like, in their pocket. Yeah. So you know, it's, like... So, so that's kind of a, you know, just kind of a, a pro tip there that you can, you know, if you sort of understand some of their ideologies, that, that you know, they're... Uh, most of the time, logic works against these folks, but... You have to sort of get inside it for a second um, to, to make it work. So you can, that was just kind of, that just reminded me that sort of, you're there to, you know, the Constitution, but. Um. Yeah. Um, and then touching on something that Bill just mentioned that I'd kind of like to get a reaction from all of you, whoever wants to go first, is um, how do you report responsibly on extremism? Like, how do you. I feel like in, even in the last year, I've seen examples where it's like, is this free publicity or is this ethical reporting? Um, and so I don't know who wants to go first, but that's my question to you. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think there's a point where everybody's sort of like, a lot of these groups have really complicated mythologies toward them. Um, you know, like how they originated and, but their, their ideas, their concrete ideas underneath it all is white supremacy and it doesn't need to be explained much more than that. Um, I think explaining the weird quirks of each group um, 
it can only go so far to serve the story. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, it is some sort of like weird cultural like fad that you don't want to be promoting. Um, that's, I think, in terms of like you know, because hate groups have been so prominent in mainstream media now today, um, you definitely see, you know, CNN over or NBC over uh, interviewing Richard Spencer or Steve Bannon. It's, it's like there's a point where they are their own sophisticated PR arm and they know how to, to use the media in that way. Um, so I think that as long as you're pushing and complicating the story um, more than I think, you know, everyone should just get over the, the weird quirks and obsession about it. Um, and you can now report it for as it is. Yeah, I think um, I definitely think that sort of our cousins in broadcast media could do a better job. But I, I think in print, um, from my perspective, in print media, that's a place where you can debunk some of these ideas that do get kind of bounced around. So you, should, you have to give it enough space to explain what's happening to sort of debunk it because they're easily debunkable, as you say, sort of, um, but to sort of let it go un, unchallenged or, the, the, you know, the idea that um, that these groups are not going to flourish if they're not covered by the media anymore. It is not, I don't think that's quite true because just just the way um, the the infoscape is sort of shattered now, and, and people can sort of form groups and promote themselves and all, by themselves. I think it's more important than ever to uh, not overcover or give like extra time to these sort of arcane arguments, but to um, challenge the ideas in some ways in a public forum. I still believe that that's important. Uh, a point I think is worth mentioning is that we sort of have kind of commingled two things here. One is the the family that we'll call the white supremacy, white nationalist, racist group over here, and the other the other folks are basically the anti-government patriot crowd, and they're buddies and they do have some common ground, but they're sometimes in two different groups. For example, sometimes in some militia groups I've written about and covered, uh, you'll see people of color that have joined a militia group, uh, and they don't necessarily espouse racist beliefs. But and I think another quick history lesson here is uh, Randy Weaver, who was a central figure in Ruby Ridge, uh, showed up at the Aryan Nations. That's how it was his entry point. And he met a government informant there. He, he sold some sawed-off shotguns uh, to this uh, federal agent. And and then the siege in, occurred in 1992, which has now become a watershed event, which I'm sure most of you have probably heard and read about. After that, after that occurred, uh, there was a meeting in um, North Idaho, and the group called itself the Idaho Citizens Awareness Network. And I, 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 for some reason, I have this ability to remember acronyms, so it was called I-CAN. And one of the first leaders of that group was a Texas Ku Klux Klansman by the name of Lewis Beam. And he and he basically was pitching the notion that, you know, never again are we going to allow federal agents, you know, uh, attack a family in a cabin on a mountaintop, you know, and kill, kill the, a, a woman and her son uh, over the issue of sawed-off guns. And he developed quite 
quite a crowd and basically he was just appealing to local folks to come and join this ICANN group. Didn't tell many of them, by the way, that he was a former Grand Wizard of the Klan in Texas. But so in about 1992, after Ruby Ridge, a lot of these different patriot groups and militia groups started popping up around the country, including the militia of Montana. And in short order, the militia of Montana intersected with some anti-Indian groups in Montana. And so there's this linkage. Think of it as a big chain. And, and not all of them are racist. Not all of them are you know, militia guys that are worried about their guns that want to go play war out in the woods. But there's some, there's some common denominators out there. And the other thing that is worth mentioning is that some of them have grown way more sophisticated. Instead of being blatantly racist like Richard Butler was with swastikas and cr burning crosses, they talk about, you know, one world government, the deep state, uh, you know, conspiracy theories. Oh, a lot of them are really, at least some of these militia groups and these patriot groups are really big on conspiracy theories, including, remember one conspiracy theory about the fact our former president wasn't born in the United States? We all can know who was promoting that conspiracy theory and the man who's now in the White House, by the way. Um, so just look at the linkage that exists and look, look at who, the, who are the individuals that you're dealing with by name and the Southern Poverty Law Center, which I worked as a correspondent there for eight years after I retired from the newspaper. They have a huge database and so does the Anti-Defamation League. And Lenny Zeskind, who uh, is a colleague of mine, has, has written a really thick book that's a great reference point. So the references are out there. Uh, so if you're dealing with somebody, find out who they are. What are their linkages, and what did they what did they do before they got involved with the Idaho Citizens Awareness Network? Yeah, um, another great um, resource for that came out in 2018, which is a book called "Bring the War Home: uh, The White Power Movement and Paramilitary America" by Kathleen Ballou. Um, and what was interesting about that, when you take it back farther, was that the sort of um, a lot of this started after the Vietnam War when um, folks from South Vietnam entered, fled and ended up living along the Gulf Coast and out fishing the fishermen, the white fishermen of the Gulf Coast. KKK and some other folks came in there and started using that about, hey, your government's abandoning you. Right, right, okay, Louis Beam, yeah. So, so the, the linkage between the sort of anti-Fed, that was where anti-federalism really kind of took, took root alongside white supremacy sort of ideology. So they, you know, the, you, you, it's only the, like the 80s that you have to go back to, you know, and I guess that's short time for some of us. Maybe that's a long time for folks who weren't born in the 80s yet. But um, for some of us, that that's not that long ago. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I think to your question, Anna, which is like how the, the, the pitfalls are that like it's so it's very complicated um, and it's always sort of changing and morphing in a lot of ways, but its core is always kind of the same. So um, the, the reason that it's important is that, you know, um, the president of the United States, for example, and so the, the sort of the environment that we're all kind of finding ourselves in right now, um, it's getting more okay to be out about it in a way. So there's, there's this permissive environment that exists right now that's really kind of um, emboldening a lot of these groups. And then when you sort of get it combined with um, immigration reform questions, which ought to be sort of a political question, then you've got this other sort of environment, and then you have 
gun culture and, and, and shootings in a, in a Walmart in El Paso. So these things are all really, really tangled together. And, but I do think it's up to journalists to try to disentangle it for the for the public because otherwise it, it either it gets accidentally supported in some ways because it seems innocuous some parts of the message on the front or it just gets ignored as something like kind of fringe but it, it's actually really deeply rooted I think okay so now that we've um, kind of talked about the history and even the present day of this kind of reporting um, I'm kind of wondering what you all think about the future of this reporting and when it comes to these clashes over land water wildlife if you think that climate change um, is something that will exacerbate these conflicts more so whoever wants to go first can go for it um, yeah, I think like what we we've, we've seen in like the past, um, the El Paso shooter and the uh, the New Zealand shooter and even the Norwegian shooter, um, they all kind of mention um, the limitations of natural resources for white people, um, and I think that it is in the back of their mind. They realize that climate change is a thing there's a finite amount of resources and um, eco-fascism is, you know, is a, is, um, a lot trendier now um, in white nationalists and anti-government circles. Um, so I think that that's something to look out for. Um, I think there's also going to be a lot more um, battles over wildlife and public lands management. Um, Anna's, one of Anna's last stories was about uh, the Cow Creek tribe who just received a lot of land back and they were going to be managing um, the forest burns. And the it was a moment where a conservation group actually was the one who was anti-treaty and anti-Indian. Um, so if you think about like how you know, when you think about like communities and their mitigation of climate change, um, there's going to be battles over who has those rights. Yeah, I think I think for environmental journalists, such as this for in this conference, the eco-fascism is a really important thing to keep an eye on, and you can sort of the sort of red flags for me on eco-fascism tend to be questions around population. Um, too many people on our land. Um, uh, carrying capacity, the carrying capacity of, of uh, this place that we love, America, is, is too much. And um, it can be really tricky. I just, I had a, um, a meeting with my board members for High Country News recently where I, I try to get them to understand that there's some like deeply rooted problems in the environmental movement itself that like lend itself to eco-fascism. Um, and I read them this from a very sort of famous conservation writer named Edward Abbey. <laughs> and he, he, you know, he's, this is um, <clears throat> not that long ago, but he wrote that, or he said in a speech that it might be wise for us as American citizens to consider calling a halt to the mass influx of even more millions of hungry, ignorant, unskilled, and 
culturally, morally, genetically impoverished people, especially when these uninvited millions bring with them an alien mode of life which, let us be honest about this, is not appealing to the majority of Americans. So the environmental movement and people who are sort of get fired up by Desert Solitaire and, and Ed Abbey are very much a part of our readership. And I get a lot of letters and phone calls about some of our coverage um, that sort of flag this, oh, there's too many people coming over the, over the border, or there's too many people on the public lands, or everything's overrun. Um, and that, that can be something to really sort of pay attention to because not all of the people who say that are necessarily eco-fascists, but they're sort of heading that way. They're heading toward uh, arguments that say, hey, we need to let, like, we cannot let people people in. Um, we can't, like, let democracy run. Um, and that, so those kinds of things start to slip very easily. So I, I think the, uh, under climate change and the, these, these ideas of, um, you know, there's sort of, there's a kind of um, panic about what's going to happen to the human race or something like that um, under climate change is really kind of starting to flip people out some so uh, you know, I think I think as as journalists being being on the lookout for that and understanding that there's a continuity to these arguments that are sort of evolving and shifting uh, is very important to keep in mind and it also makes for um, better better stories out there if you're sort of like oh well hold on a second because you could call someone on that who's sort of you know adores that abbey and just say well did you did you know this <laughs> you know you know and and when what do you think about that? That, that that's to me that's very interesting ground to cover as a as a journalist so did you want to answer that um yeah, I think what we're one of the things we're sort of all saying in kind of a backwards way, uh, or maybe not a backwards way, but uh, is that there are a lot of these mainstream issues out there now, for, ranging from you know immigration to gun control to L LGBTQ issues, public schools, tribal sovereignty, land use, any number of those topics. You can see this anti-government, uh, patriot crowd, and or the white nationalists, uh, you know, inter inter you know, come on scene. Uh, Charlottesville, for example, remember that all came about because it, their battle cry was the removal of some Confederate statues. So there are all sorts of issues out there that can, when you're least expecting it, these guys show up. And 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 who are they? And what do they want? What do they want done? So, uh, it, but the the list of potential topics is really long. Okay, so I'm gonna. Oh, what? Oh, I'm just wondering if anti-vaxxers are part of that. Oh. Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm just going to ask one more question, and then we're going to move to questions out there. Um, okay, this is the last question is I'm wondering what kind of advice uh, you all would give to local or na national-level journalists that are covering extremism. Uh, I don't want to be a mic hog here. Uh, the first thing to do is is, uh, is keep your eye on Facebook. Find out who the Proud Boys are in your neighborhood. Find out uh, what anti-immigrant groups. If there are a fair chapter in your city, uh, are there uh, anti-environmental groups in your in your it, wherever it is you live or or work? Uh, you know, do your homework right in your own backyard, and, I th and use the maps that that Brian mentioned that are on Southern Poverty Law Center. Again, they're broken down between uh, anti-government and patriot 
target groups and, and actual hate groups, again, with the overlap we've already talked about. And also, uh, spend some time looking at the websites, if you, if you know them, for that some of these people put out there, because it's amazing what some of them actually admit out there in the public domain. For example, in the anti-Indian movement in Montana, there's a website called This West is Our West. And it's loaded with potential story ideas. If you're a journalist in Montana or Wyoming or anywhere in the Northern Rockies, it's, it's like, what are these people talking about? It's like, it'll, it'll, it'll make your eyes pop out. So, you know, use the internet. I mean, when I first started as a reporter, I just, I, I just wished I had had the internet back in the early 70s because it's just a huge tool and it's amazing what you'll find out there. Divide everything by two though, you know, when you, particularly on Facebook. I mean, don't take it to the bank until you've verified it through other means. Yeah, I think um, what you're in any sort of given locale or um, local reporting, you want to kind of be on the lookout for there, there's a lot of sticker campaigns, um, Identity Europa, sort of like they're, they're very proud of putting their stickers up and sort of. It's like a dog peeing on a hydrant or something. And uh, so they're, they're not um, shy about what they're doing. They're, they're, they're trying to assert their claim to any given place. So I think starting with the Southern Poverty Law Center's um, hate map and kind of learning, you can just see by your state and you can search by state um, what the different groups are that have um, chapters or um, you know they're organized so they have, they have meetings and stuff. Um, and then keeping an eye on social for those kind of cues about what what are what are kind of what are popping up and um, and then I think just kind of figuring out what that means for where you live, how much support do they actually have? Is that is that really accurate? Um, and then also holding uh, your local government to account. Uh, you know, there's some accountability reporting in there, too. If you have um, if you're in a rural area and you have a, a sheriff who's a member um, one of these organizations, including the Constitutional Sheriffs and Peace Officers Association, that's a problem, right? Because that's that's a sort of that's an extreme view. That person is is uh, elected, so how, how, why is that person elected? And so, what does that say about your community? So there there are ways to find out how these power structures work within at a local level, because that's really it. Really is it's very grassroots. And um, uh, it's very bottom up. So being able to call those things out and then holding a sheriff, uh, you know, if they're a member of that organization, holding them to account. Like, do you know what that organization is? Why are you a member of that? Um, you know, I think those, those things will um, give good stories. Yeah. Yeah, I think, like, following up on, like, like social media, even like checking out their retweets, like why are you retweeting from this patriot movement or um, you know espousing something that was taken from like American Renaissance? Um, I think if you're going to be in these circles nowadays, I think it's really this is just a practical tip. Like um, it's really important to know that they're also checking you out. Um, they are going to search your social media as well. Um, and so they're also going to try to hack into your emails and things like that. So it's really important um, to keep all your stuff extremely well password protected. Um, if you're handling sensitive things, um, find ways to send it encrypted. 
um, things like that. Because um, these people, these this like newer generation of white supremacists and anti-government pe people, they know how to communicate safely um, and not be seen and do all these things anonymously. Um, so it should be up to you to, you know, if you're going to step in that world, you have to know how safe you are in that world. Yeah, and EFF is a good resource for uh, safety online. Okay, so now questions, right? That's it, okay. I'll start with in the far, far back. Okay, I'm just gonna repeat the question really quick because it's recording. So you wanna know about the connection between these groups and potentially like corporate influence? Uh, it's interesting that all the lands that you're talking about now are you know, public lands that's in dispute. And if the, if the public nature of those lands is, uh, retreat, is, is, is withdrawn, then that land can be extremely valuable to, who knows, grazing or uh, you know, mineral exploitation, extractive industries, shale development, who knows. Uh -huh. uh, so I'm just curious whether it goes beyond a number of extremist kind of fanatics mm -hmm. who are fanatics, let's face it, and they're relatively small, even though they're big enough to pay attention to, mm -hmm. um, to the larger interests that we've been also talking about in terms of who has an interest in that land beyond, let's say, um, you know, Bundy goes and does his yeah. he's pissed off guy. Yeah. Uh, but there's other huge the, also looking around at these lands. The, inter the intersection there, um, up until the Trump administration, was the land transfer movement, which is the movement to transfer public lands back and not back into the hands of the states. Um, for um, and that that movement also tied into Alec which sort of creates model legislation for different states. So up until the Trump administration, you had a lot of movements within state governments coming from county commissioners to say, hey, we want to examine what it, would, what it would be like for us if we got this land away from the federal government, which should be ours anyway. Um, that had a lot of movement under it. Um, and what sort of happened under the Trump administration is you didn't really need that movement anymore because it was working through the executive branch and the BLM, for example, to just just sort of like just lease it out and just get as much money from it and royalties as possible. But where those, you know, probably after the Trump administration or under different administrations, you'll see the idea of transferring land from federal government possession to states. That's really where this broader um, set of stakeholders really puts it. So in some ways, the fanatics are um, kind of softening the ground on the vanguard of some of this um, crazy ideology. But behind them is this idea of like, hey, federal government shouldn't tell me how to control the land like right over there, right next to me. My county commissioner should, right? But that sort of ignores the idea of the public land as this sort of belongs to everyone. And it becomes more about a well, we want control of that land because we want the uh, ability to turn it into money in some way. Um, and so I think that's the answer you might be looking for. Yeah. Alistair? Yeah. So um, thank you, Brian, for um, acknowledging <laughs> Edward Abbey as a, with your thoughts, because that is something that um, a lot of I learned in transitioning from reporting to being an advocate for the environment now. Like I've seen a lot of, excuse my language, I see a lot of reason why 
Um, I guess I tried to understand like why a lot of hetero white men are get wet over Edward Abbey. And I was trying to I was trying to understand because it's the same thing that happens with my boss and then like I was like, why are they so obsessed with this person? <laughs> and so I started reading his book and I just had issue with it and I stopped reaching like reading it after the portion where <laughs> He describes like the bull snakes having sex with each other, and I was like, "All right, this is probably culturally insensitive for me, right? Because I'm feeling nauseous from just reading this." <laughs> but I just got the sense already, like how he was going about that piece, and like how it's very hard being with with the organization that I work for. And I love Hugh Trust, but sometimes there's pushback among environmental allies like right, him yeah. and Suwa, and yes, um, like how do you like? Get it together again, like I said earlier in the panel, like how can you like how can we explain this narrative uh, of land stewardship from what we think is not only indigenous but also from the Hispanic yeah. panel earlier, culturally um, aware and sensitive or insensitive. Yeah. And so I I think that's something as reporters, maybe you guys should also explore. Um, because that's it's a, it's a lot of pushback even even though we're allies, like when you are strategizing on the national message, mm -hmm. like crickets. Yeah. Like the very, very short answer to that yeah. is that the um, the experience of or oh the wait, Brian, sorry, I have to repeat the question. Oh, go I'm ahead. Sorry. sorry, Judy just reminded me. So, yeah, go ahead. Um, uh, so the, uh, the question is, why do white males get so wet over at Abbey? Great. Okay. <laughs> Act, that's the question. Okay. The answer, <laughs> the answer to that is that if you sort of sort of chart the idea, um, you can you can sort of work backwards from um, wilderness in the American mind. The idea of wilderness can go back to the Romantics, and if you think about the Romantics and their sort of response to the Enlightenment uh, and their theories about the sublime, so there you have the dominant culture sort of bringing the sublime over from England into the United States. It moves through transcendentalism, through Henry David Thoreau and um, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, and then it moves into the wilderness movement, uh, but the wilderness was actually a construct built out of booting people off of their land and pretending they weren't there in the first place. So what you have is a dominant culture that puts as its preeminent value this um, experience of the sublime, even if they have to construct it at the expense of other people. So you have the answer to that question is that the dominant culture values sublime over justice. Often. So speaking to, because there is extremism in and around Bears Ears in San Juan County, mm -hmm. and I don't know if other reporters are aware of that extremism, which goes down into the San Juan County Commission. Yeah. Now the, the community, the extremism in the far right of the county is trying to now take down the Native American Majority Commission because they don't like who's in power now. And so that, that, I learned in Utah, yeah. county commissions have power. Unlike yeah. New Mexico, where I'm from, huh. I, I don't see that power as like very um, yeah. visible. Yeah, I think uh, just just real quickly to. The, the the idea of county commissioners is uh, you know the way that they r uh, run rural a lot of rural um, areas that's a really interesting place to start in figuring out who 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 are your county commissioners and what are what do they espouse and believe in. Okay, is there overlap between extremists and extractive industries? Uh, oil and gas. <laughs> oil and gas specifically. <clears throat> no? 
now? Um, so right now I'm looking at how conservation groups and hunting groups align with um, anti-Indian and anti-treaty um, groups and sometimes they're fighting in the same battles sometimes um, like in Anna's piece they're alone fighting the battle um, and so looking at hunting groups those in the last decade have been getting a lot more funding from the oil and gas industry. So you not only see them trying to amend uh, ESA legislation, um, but you're also, and you know, other types of um, wildlife management legislation, but you're also seeing um, a lot of oil and gas interest uh, within those. Um, and so while I don't think that there's like a clear fanatic at the helm um, that's also directing their weird, or in oil gas interests and directing like a militia or anything like that. I've, I've personally not seen that. Um, but there are, you know, clear ties within um, conservation slash hunting groups to those types of industries that do get into legal battles with Indian tribes. Rico, how do we give context to these conflicts in the larger history? So two, <laughs> two books that I really enjoyed um, that sort of, for me, helped contextualize, um, you know, the reasons why we call uh, Osama bin Laden Geronimo and we have any number of weapons, equipment, and vehicles called like Black Hawks or Tomahawk missiles or things like that. Um, there's this weird fetishization of Indians and uh, frontier wars. Um, as you pointed out, I think a really good book on that is um, called Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Um, and she helps, she uses a number of historical sources to kind of trace how you know, like after 2000, um, 2001 on 9-11, um, journalists kind of came into, you know, this new global war on terror that they had to uh, report on. And so what, you know, there was these kind of like special forces operations and these kinds of ghost wars that we were operating um, that were almost like search and destroy in some ways. Um, but also there was an unlimited battlefield. Um, and one of the arguments that Roxanne writes about is that, you know, that actually wasn't the first way of, or the, you know, this sort of new trend that the United States was doing um, after our global war on terror began. Um, but we treated uh, Native Americans um, the same way, uh, using unlimited war, uh, scorch and burn tactics, and things like that. Um, and that's, she even traces in another book called Loaded, um, the historical um, roots of the Second Amendment as very much a empowering white supremacist sort of constitutional law where militias began to form from people who wanted to settle land. Um, and so that was a way for them to do it through um, militia 
violence and unlimited war. Um, and unlimited war is like defined as you know not just fighting combatants, um, but you know killing women and children, villages, and things like that. Um, so those I think are really two good books if you want to get super deep um, into that as well. And yeah, I would also suggest looking into. Um, not just Edward Abbey, but other like the origins of like Sierra Club um, and Theodore Roosevelt, who was also like a eugenicist and white supremacist, um, who we all hail as founding, um, you know, wildlife refuges. Yeah, and I think another to add to that on how do you put that into context, and it, it has to do with I think a lot of the the theme for this day overall, or this workshop, is that you really have to be considerate about your framing, and also how much context that you can give, how much space you can give to any give, given piece. So, how do you how do you frame a piece the the right way that isn't just. Um, um, espousing just like uh, dominant mythologies um, in, in a way that people who are living the dream can understand it. It's really complicated. Um, and there's and some people don't like it. And, and um, I think High Country News has lost some readers as a result of sort of peeling back the veil too often. And, um, uh, but we are gaining readers who are more interested in that along the way. So I, I, to me, it's, it's all about uh, commitment, priorities, uh, space, slowing down, giving space to things, um, and letting people sort of tell their own stories in some ways. All, all of these things sort of come out. Like you can't be an expert on everything. And we all know this as journalists. So you have to find the people who are experts on things and let them talk about stuff. So um, all of that can kind of help build out a, a different kind of context. Yeah. The question is, what hunting groups are doing the thing that you were talking about earlier? <laughs> um, so there, there's a number, I can't think of a lot of them off the top of my head, um, that there was a lot of like hunting and fishing disputes um, where groups came in opposition to tribes asserting their treaty uh, hunting and fishing rights um, in the Pacific Northwest um, in from like the 70s through even now actually um, but I think some of the juggernauts that I'm thinking about are like uh, the NRA um, which absolutely I mean like they do a ton of different things but they have been really um, invested in their outdoor recreation um, which they you know, when you get into looking at hunting groups, um, they say that hunters, you know, are the true conservationist, um, or many of them say that, or that is a sort of talking point, um, because, you know, hunting permits, hunting and fishing permits um, do fund um, state wildlife agencies. Um, and so I think that there's a certain you know, weight to it, but also you have to be skeptical of it. Um, and I'm not saying all hunting groups are, you know, shills for oil and gas, um, but there are certain ones where in recent years, things like, like the NRA, um, they have been getting a lot of significant funding from oil and gas. Do you see any increased tolerance from these government officials on these kinds of groups? Um, Bill, do you want to answer this one? 
Oh, uh, the short answer is yes. And uh, if you look at the Southern Poverty Law Center site, they have a news blog called Hate Watch. Uh, they have uh, identified a few people that were in places of power uh, in the administration who've had some definite uh, sympathies to white nationalist causes uh, and or some uh, anti-immigrant anti groups. Uh, I, I'm not going to rattle their names off the top of my head without doing a little more background, but if you go to the, the SPLC website forward slash hate watch, uh, you'll, you'll, in fact, within the last month or so, they identified um, a, a fairly senior official in, I, I believe it was the Department of State, but I'm, I'm not certain of that. But at any rate, yes, there have been there have been there have been uh, several examples I think that, that that have come to light, and of course the you know the classic example was you know what we saw at Charlottesville, 150 miles from the White House, where the president said there are good people on both sides, and that clearly was a dog whistle to a lot of the people that were in Richard Spencer's crowd that were you know uh, marching through the University of Virginia campus saying you know uh, anti-Semitic slogans and you know denouncing uh, you know people of color and so forth i mean it, it, i mean they had tiki torches but it, if you close you, you even slightly closed your eyes it reminded you of an old time clan rally and it was on a major university campus and uh, it was horrific and uh, a woman of course um, was murdered uh, during the course of that event so yeah the examples uh, that we're seeing in this administration are pl are plentiful and there was also um you mentioned there was a there was a hate watch investigation um, into a State Department official who, what turned out to be a white nationalist and was hosting white nationalist dinners at his house. Um, that was I feel like a month ago. I, yeah, I forget the name of him, but pretty that was a. Yeah, yeah. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> and how about in terms of prosecutions and crimes or, or anything like that? Is, have you seen any any um, softer? Of those kind of individuals who are on the uh, on the activist side of that. In in government, in in local yeah. governments, um, federal, state. There's one group that we haven't. Well, I'm not sure about a shift, but one group that we haven't talked about are the three percenters, and um, the uh, how do they? They're it's like a three percent of. The, in the, the revolution, the yeah, the colonists, yeah, three yeah, percent of the colonists actually stood up to the government. It's a great, it's a great brand, yeah. So um, their their fancy little logo is uh, the Roman numeral for three with a bunch of stars around it, and you'll see that tattoo on the backs of hands around in Colorado, including on police officers. And recently, I was going through DIA, and I noticed some of the DIA, at least one of the DIA security guards was a. Th so there's sort of, I don't know if there's more tolerance for it or or what, but we did re we did report on a. a, a um, a member of the Denver Police Department who had a three percenter tattoo on uh, and has also um, shot and killed a Native American, a Rosebud Sioux member. Um, and the, I think he was not kicked off of the force because he said, "Oh, I don't, I don't believe in the, that anymore." You, you know, so that, I mean, I don't he know. Said it like, was an accident that it looked the same as the logo. Oh, do you, yeah. So yeah. that's total bullshit. So there, so he's tolerated inside the Denver Police Department. So in in that way, that's a really specific example. Um, um. I mean, three percenters just popped up recently in Oregon around um, a carbon initiative. Um, the GOP before 
uh, in Oregon. I don't know if it's three percenters or if it's been Oath Keepers, but in the past few years, they've mentioned um, their presence as being a positive thing. So that's at the state level, and it's not, and it's within a political party. It's not like a position, but I mean that just happened earlier this year in like May or something like that, and that was like national news because it was. Yeah. such a quick thing and then people were trying to make sense of it because they didn't they weren't familiar with the three percenters right and the, the three percenters in the oath especially the oath keepers are ones that sort of show up in battle fatigues with assault rifles at charlottesville at all kinds of different places and they're completely tolerated <laughs> you know like in, in that way so i'm not quite sure if that's sort of what the trend is but i i think just just in general people are feeling empowered to get tattooed up, get their guns out there, and just, like, march along, you know? Um, And border militias as well. I think, like, there's... There's a certain varying degree of tolerance that Border Patrol has for these groups. Um, I think there was one group that um, in southern New Mexico was patrolling the border, and they were impersonating Border Patrol agents and detaining people. I think they only got arrested because um, someone filmed it or something like that. And But I think a lot of the Border Patrol militias that I've seen and looked at, like, what they what they talk about and even like there was a Mother Jones story on this um, where someone infiltrated a border militia uh, where it seems like they are like um, tolerated and even like okay well like they'll meet up they'll see border patrol they'll talk shop you know about immigrants and things like that um, and they just let them go um, I think there is I think part of that may be because they, it seems like they have similar missions. Um, and also that, you know, I think Border Patrol is not happy with all the press they're getting. Um, <laughs> and so I think that there's, I don't know, I, that's just my non-expert opinion on it but uh, to quickly add to what he just said uh within the last week in near tacoma washington a group of proud boys showed up outside an ice detention facility saying we support ice and uh it was a large demonstration this is in the seattle area got a lot of publicity some of those media accounts didn't really say you know who are the proud boys and what are they all about which gets back to the point i made previously uh, by the way, another footnote, the Anti-Defamation League on their website has a great uh, breakdown of tattoos. And if you have nothing to do sometime, go to the ADL site and look at the tattoos. They'll show you the 3% sign. They just added the OK sign, which is now the most recent, you know, and it's three fingers, three percenters. OK, it's now been identified by the ADL as a white supremacy gesture. And then the last scary thing I'll say about this is that you really do see, like, um, you know, when the um, the president's advisor, Roger Stone, was 
free. <laughs> uh, I, we watched him sort of, you know, keeping track, keeping tabs on him. He flew into Las Vegas for one of these freedom conferences where all these people mix around. And then not long after that is on CNN kind of warning about this civil war business. And so now you've got an impeachment sort of momentum for impeachment. And you've got the president sort of dog whistling to these militias. So I think that there are real stories to be told, like at a local level from this national sort of story. And I think that's one thing to really, really keep an eye on. I don't know if I'm being as paranoid as all the extremists or something, but I think that as I really, really in my gut feel like that's something to keep an eye on. Do we have time for one more or call it? Quick one? Does anybody have one last quick one? Quick. I'll still quick. I'll take it. I'll do it. I'll take is it. yours quick? Yours is first. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go there. Sorry. <laughs> I wanted to quickly note that Roseanne Delvar Ortiz's co author on Indigenous People's History is here this week, later this week. Um, Gina Julio Whitaker. Um, oh, she's great. Yeah. Okay. She's kind of, she's on uh, the mining panel and she's in the plenary. And she has her own book out that just came out this year, so. Yeah, as long as grass grows, great book, read it. Um, yeah, so I wondered. What the white folks on the panel or anywhere do, because our idea of what's objective is kind of woven out of the, not white supremacy per se, this, but um, we're cut from a certain cloth. And so we think, oh, I'm being objective, but stepping out of what we think is objectivity. I know for me, the podcast Seeing White has helped a lot and the work of Robin D'Angelo, but I wondered if you guys had any tips or on how to step out of our own epistemology? Yeah. Yeah. That's a quick question. I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the, answer is, do, the answer is do your homework, check your privilege, step back, see yourself as like a, a part of the problem because you're benefiting from a system of white supremacy that other people aren't benefiting from, and then you can kind of peek peek through the veil a little uh, occasionally, and it'll at least um, keep you from... Um, uh, I mean, being being totally blind. Can I just grab this? Yeah, no. Should wrap up first. I should wrap up first. Oh. Oh, yep. Um, everybody, just surround yourself with diverse people and yes. friends, and they will help you see things in a different lens. You can't do this on your own, surrounded by the same white people all the time, because you're not going to break those barriers. Please feel free to reach out to diverse groups and to, you know, see yourself and be challenged to look at yourself in a different way. Um, people of color are ready to help out and to be a part of any type of support to help us all become a better society. So step out of your white circle. Yeah. Yeah. And a quick litmus test for that is if you find yourself talking to a person of color and you're really uncomfortable and don't know what to say when you're talking about something um, race related, that means you're not surrounding yourself with enough people to feel comfortable having those conversations. This is good a litmus test if you find yourself in that sort of um, position. Uh, and I guess one last recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, in Giamma Lu's uh, book, So You Want to Talk About Race, has a really great chapter mm -hmm. about checking privilege. That's good for white people and people of color. So um, I would just say that if you're even nervous about starting that, I feel like that book is a really good basic um, introduction of how to frame your thinking. Yeah. So. Yeah. Amen. Okay. <laughs> Applause for our panelists. <laughs>